Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author and speaker, Carrie O'Driscoll. Hello, Carrie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Thanks so much for coming on. And today we're going to be talking about loving our teens. And for those that don't know, Carrie O'Driscoll is the founder of The Self Project, an organization dedicated to helping adolescents grow and learn with positivity and courage. Her written works include One Teenager at a Time and her memoir, Truth Has a Different Shape. Her work uses what we know about brain and social development, mindfulness, and nonviolent communication to help families, teens, and educators build strong reciprocal relationships. Carrie herself is a mother of two young adults. She is here to talk about her latest book, Happy Healthy Teens, Why Focusing on Relationship Works, which recently was released from Roman and Littlefield Publishing and is now available in bookstores and online. How are you today, Carrie? I'm doing great today. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well, and I'm super excited because on the show, we've talked a bit about parenting, but mostly in the context of new parents. We've talked about raising our little ones and how to overcome the challenges of new life entering one's relationship. But we have yet to focus as much on the family as a whole and loving our children as they grow in their years. So I really appreciate you coming on to the show. And before we talk about teens specifically, I'd love to just talk about parenting in general. You have a lovely guide on your website, 10 Questions to Become a More Mindful Parent. So my two questions about that is, how have you brought mindfulness into your parenting? And what made you want to bring mindfulness into your parenting? And then what are some questions that can help us become more mindful parents? Yeah, thank you. I think that I started to really want to bring mindfulness into my parenting because I was developing a mindfulness practice for my own health and well-being. I struggled with anxiety and depression, but I really, I knew that a lot of that anxiety and depression was bleeding over into my parenting. And what I wanted to do was just be really intentional. I think there were a lot of things that my parents did, a lot of ways that they parented that were reflexive, you know, things that they either because they had been parented that way or because that was sort of the generally accepted way to parent in that particular generation. My parents were baby boomers. And and what that translated to was a lot of parenting out of fear. Either my parents were trying to instill fear in us, you know, fear of punishment or fear of some horrible consequence, you know, so that we grew up thinking that the world was actually a pretty scary place. Or my parents were making decisions because they were fearful that something was going to happen. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to raise my kids to believe 
that the world is a terrible place filled with really scary people. So <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm sure yeah. your children appreciated that too. I mean, I think, you know, it does, it sounds silly, but it, but it's so common, right? You know, we talk to kids about stranger danger and about, you know, if you try that drug one time, you're going to be addicted and you're going to end up homeless living on the streets. I mean, we do this hyperbole, you know, to try to scare our kids straight. And it's a really effective tactic for control in the short run, but it doesn't teach our kids that the world is actually this really magical place that is full of amazing people that we can rely on for help. And so it was important to me to use mindfulness as a way to examine my knee-jerk or reflexive responses to my kids and then decide, is this really the message I want to send or do I want to send a completely different message to them? I love that. And it is so important to stop that cycle, right? A huge the way that we parent is how our parents parented us. And it's easy to just repeat those intergenerational patterns. So it's wonderful that it almost seems like mindfulness was one way for you to like short circuit these patterns that you had experienced from your parents. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's really the basis of those 10 questions that I have on my website is a, a prompt for people to start to examine their questions around about like, what was the makeup of my family as a child, right? Were, were there two parents? Were there multiple kids? Were there, was there extended family that lived in the household? Um, was I allowed to ask questions and push back when I was a kid? Or was that something that was punished? What did punishment look like in my family? Right. So there's, there's these 10 questions that kind of help people look at what did I learn as a kid? And are those things that I want to carry on? Or are those things that I want to not continue to do with my own children. And I think, you know, so many of us get a little just caught in those reflexive parenting patterns because life is busy. You know, life is wild. <laughs> we're, we're all going, doing all the time. And I think it's really easy to, to just sort of fall back on those same old patterns and things that we've, that we were taught when we were kids. But the more that we can be intentional about the way that we interact with our kids. I think the more that we can get the message across that what we really want for them is for them to feel safe and to be happy and to feel loved. Absolutely. It sounds like your mindful questions are just a really lovely inquiry. We recently had a coach and she had this lovely phrase that we can't change what we don't understand. And I do think that level of awareness is first what's so important to understand, okay, what was the environment that I grew up in? What are these patterns that I currently have that I am not aware of yet? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's so great for us to be able to be transparent about that with our kids too, right? To be able to say to them, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that I spoke to you like that. That's the way that I grew up and that's not how I want to parent you. So I apologize. And, you know, I'm going to try to do this differently because you can't just being aware of it doesn't flip a switch and make it stop, right? It does take practice. But if we're open and transparent with our kids about that, then they can understand what we're trying to do. And that can have a huge impact on our relationship with them. So I'm hearing a lot of things from you. I'm hearing about the power of intention, the power of mindfulness, and how also important it is to practice honesty and transparency with our children 
And I'm curious if there are more principles or common values that you find can be really useful for parents to practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my number one is I don't want to make parenting decisions out of fear. And so, and that doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's different when your kid is two and they're trying to run across the parking lot, right? When you just parked the car and they're, I mean, of course you're going to make that parenting decision out of fear, but as our kids get older and the consequences shift and change, I wanted to, like, if I could feel that fear rising in my body and often that can feel like rage when, you know, when it's a teenager who maybe did something that was really stupid and could have gone sideways, (laughs) that, that becomes a red flag for me. It's like, oh, when I feel that, that fear or that rage rising in my body, then I know, do not make any decisions right now. Don't hand out punishments or consequences. Don't hand out ultimatums, like take some time and let that fear subside. Because when our brains are in that fear, that fight, flight, freeze place, we're not, we're not thinking straight. We're not using our rational brain, right? So that was my number one principle. Number two is really, you know, sort of checking my emotional temperature. You know, if my kid comes in and, and wants something from me, or they come in and they're in a bad mood, have I had a really good day? Or have I just had a really horrible exchange with a neighbor or my boss or a coworker. Like what's my emotional temperature? Cause if my emotional temperature is hot and ready for a fight or I'm super agitated and irritated, then I'm not going to respond to my child from a place of calm and love. <laughs> right. So being, being clear to take my emotional temperature before I really interact with my kids and then making sure that I'm really present. You know, if I'm in the middle of cooking dinner or, you know, I'm on my computer doing something and my kid comes into the room and they say something to me, I think it's really important to stop what you're doing, turn your body and your face towards them, make eye contact and just be really, really present, right? When we're talking, I mean, we all know how crappy it feels to be talking to somebody about something while they're staring at their phone or their computer or not even looking in our direction, (laughs) you know, it's like, are you actually paying attention to me? So yeah, being just really present. And if you can't be in that moment, you know, then I'll say, can you give me two minutes, you know, and then, and then I can close my laptop and we can talk about this, but I just need two minutes to finish writing this email or whatever. And then the last one is really trying to set aside my judgment and lead with curiosity. Sometimes an example of what that looks like, you know, maybe your kid comes in and they throw their backpack down and kick a chair and scream, this was the worst day ever, right? And you're thinking, you're not bleeding. <laughs> like what, you know, all your basic needs are met. Like, give me a break. You know, you sort of roll their, your your instinct is to kind of roll your eyes, right? Or leap in and be like, how can I help you? What What's wrong? You know, but with teenagers, I think it's really important to just kind of step back and say, ooh, tell me more about that. And then let them kind of work through their own emotion and start to come to terms with that. Teenagers are wired to be really emotional and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we, if our emotionality feeds into theirs, we can amp things up and create these stories that linger a lot longer or make things seem like they're worse than they actually are. And I think when we can lead with curiosity, when we can ask our kids to kind of tell me a little bit more about that, 
what we're doing is we're helping them switch from that highly emotional response to this logical thinking portion of their brain. And they're like, oh, okay, I can process this a little. And it also creates this connection between us, like where they don't feel judged and they don't feel gaslighted. They feel like we actually genuinely want to know. Tell me more about that. And, you know, we can do that with with everything. I mean, one of the other things that I encourage people to do with teenagers is let them teach you something. Because teenagers are often told pretty much from sunup to sundown what they don't know and what they need to get better at, right? By coaches, by mentors, by siblings, older siblings, by parents, by teachers, you know, so we got to teach you, we have to teach you, we have to teach you something. Let your teenager teach you something. What do they know? Let them be the expert, right? They're starting to, their brains are starting to be able to understand abstract concepts. You know, everything isn't black and white anymore by the time you hit your teenage years. And it's really important to give them opportunities to talk about stuff. Like, you know, what are you thinking about right now? Well, maybe they're thinking about, you know, what's happening in between Russia and Ukraine. Maybe that's really freaking them out. Maybe, you know, maybe they're thinking about this teacher that they have that is really great and super supportive and taught them this cool thing today, right? Teenagers, so like inviting them into conversation is really, really important and builds relationship in a big way. Absolutely. I love all those principles that you just mentioned and how nice and concise they are. You mentioned we don't want to make parenting decisions out of fear. You mentioned the importance of our presence face-to-face, eye-to-eye. You mentioned the importance of being aware of our current emotional state or emotional temperature, as you called it, and how important it is to set aside judgment and lead with curiosity. And I want to apply some of the other things that you mentioned to our teens specifically, because when you mentioned like as a parent, you might be tempted to roll your eyes. You might be tempted to look at your phone without paying attention to the other person. I was like, yes, and teenagers seem to be prone to that behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking of the common moody teenager that people know about. They always have their headphones in and they ignore you. And you're like, how was school? How was school? And they take one ear out and they say fine and they put the, they put it back in and by and large teenagers get a bit of a bad rap but you say and you have encouraged this idea that teens are actually quite magical and that this bad rap is undeserved so what makes you say that why why is the bad rap for teenagers undeserved mm. well first of all one of the most magical things I think about teenagers is it's this only time in human development when you can legitimately have a foot in both worlds. And you can see that in teenagers, right? There could be one moment where, you know, they, they're watching something on TV with you and they turn to you and they say the most amazingly profound, insightful thing. And you think, holy cow, (laughs) like, that's amazing. Where did you even come up with it? Right. And then the next minute they're, you know, sprawled on the couch watching SpongeBob and getting like Cheeto crumbs all over everything, you know, or they're just belly laughing or, you know, building with Legos or something. And you're thinking you're 14 years old. What are you, you know, that reverting back to this childhood kind of thing. But so they, they, they're kind of playing in that space between, what it means to be a kid and have that sort of 
joy and freedom of, you know, doing and knowing that I'm going to be taken care of and everything's going to be okay. And then that adult world of, you know, experimenting with like, where do I have power and influence and, and what can I think about in a completely different way? And it can change from minute to minute, which is why I think it's just absolutely magical. And the other thing about teenagers is because of that, they have this sort of boundless creativity, right? It was a teenager that came up with the idea for how to clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We haven't fully yet indoctrinated them into the world of <laughs> you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And so their brains are still working in this way where they're coming up with these wildly creative solutions and ideas for different things. And I just think that's so cool. It's really cool to watch. But the other thing that I think is important for us to know about teenagers is developmentally, they're designed to be the way they are. So there are these two little structures in the, in the human brain about the size of an almond. And they're right down sort of by the midbrain section called the amygdala. And that's our emotion center of the human brain. And that's the, you know, the site of like the fight, flight, freeze response, among other things. During the teenage years, which are adolescent years, which is roughly 10 or 11 years old to 22, 23 years old, the amygdala is physically swollen to three times its normal size. So it's not shocking that teenagers are emotional and moody because everything is processed through the emotion center of the brain in a teenager. That's where the, that's everything, literally everything goes through the amygdala in the teenage brain. And it's on high alert all the time. And so the other part of the thing that's important to know about the teenage brain is that the logic center, the prefrontal cortex, where we do our like, you know, A to B to C, like if this, then this kind of thinking, our rational thinking brain is not fully developed and it won't be until 22, 23, 24 years old. And so when you marry those two things together <laughs> and your teenager comes home and they've done something really stupid and you go, oh my God, what were you thinking? If they look at you and, <laughs> and say, I don't know, they're not lying. That's not manipulative. That's true. They, they literally weren't thinking. <laughs> and the third thing that's important to know about the adolescent brain is dopamine has anywhere between a 3x and a 5x effect on the adolescent brain. So, I mean, we get dopamine when we take a risk and do, you know, if you try something new, you know, if you're skateboarding for the first time, or if you jump out of an airplane, or if you, you know, drive your car 90 miles an hour on a straightaway on the freeway or whatever, right? We get a dopamine hit from that. Adolescents are, their brains are wired for them to take risks because they get that dopamine hit times three or five when they do something risky. So like all of those things together <laughs> sort of conspire to make teenagers who they actually are. And so sometimes when we're looking at them thinking, oh my God, you are such an idiot. What is wrong with <laughs> you? Right. It's, it's more our job as people who love teenagers to understand those things and help them figure out what what's a healthy risk, right? What can, what can what's a healthy risk? Maybe we learn, maybe we take snowboarding lessons or surfing lessons, right? There's there, how can we shepherd you through this time of your life to help you understand 
that emotions are super powerful and also they're not going to last forever and it's not going to kill you if you feel horrible, right? And how do we develop that logical thinking part of your brain? So yeah, I think we expect a lot of teenagers because a lot of us don't necessarily understand the way that their brains are designed. Wow. Yeah. So I really love how you've gone into basically the neuroscience of a developing brain. And what I'm hearing from you is basically three developments. One, the amygdala is, we'll say, overactive. Teenagers are processing everything through an emotional lens. Two, the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, not fully developed. So the logical reasoning part is not fully there yet. And then there's more dopamine. So people are wired to take risks. And... I know you're not like an evolutionary psychologist, but I am curious why you think that this development happens in the teenage years. Like what is the evolutionary advantage to having more moody, less logical, more risk-taking teenagers? I mean, honestly, I think it is, you know, that's historically, maybe not in the last, you know, 100 years or so, but historically adolescence was the time when people left the tribe, right? Or, or they were becoming an adult, right? So I'm learning how to go out and hunt on my own, or I'm getting married and starting my own family, right? My great grandmother got married when she was 14 years old. And so that overactive fight, flight, freeze response, I think developed to keep them safe, because they were pulling away from their family. They were going out into the world in a much bigger way, right? You need to have a bigger fight, flight, freeze response because there's maybe some really scary things out there in the world that you kind of need to be paying attention to. But also getting a bigger dopamine hit means that when there's a bigger reward, right? Because if there wasn't a reward, why would you ever leave home? Why would you ever leave your family, right? So there has to be a big reward. So I think that's what the dopamine thing is about. I think there was this sort of instinctual thing that human beings needed to rely on, right? As they were individuating and going out into the world in a bigger way. The prefrontal cortex, you know, it is a very stepwise thing. It, I mean, it's, it's like learning to crawl before you learn to walk, right? Like there, it's this very purposeful, like we have to learn certain things before we can learn other things. So I think that it's really important for us to, even as we start to individuate and leave our families as teenagers, that we still have a tribe of elders that we can rely on for really good information right? Like I'm going to look to these people who have a fully developed prefrontal cortex to say, now remind me what happens if I do this when I'm out hunting (laughs) and this thing, (laughs) and this thing happens, right? Because human beings are wired to be in community. We're wired to be in relationship. And so not having a fully developed prefrontal cortex until we're, you know, in our mid early to mid twenties may be evolutionarily a way for us to remain connected to the elders who could give us that wisdom and life experience information. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love the idea. And it does lead me into my next question around how do we as parents best manage these changes in the teenage brain? So you mentioned a few things. One is that we are there to like be that 
more measured risk analysis. <laughs> so when they like, I think I might do this thing, you say, hmm, that doesn't sound like a good idea, but how can I um, funnel this into more productive and, and safer ways? So once we understand the changes that we just mentioned in the developing teenage brain, what are some things that we as parents want to do? How do we want to shift our approach? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it's really important for us to share some of that information with our kids, right? Because a lot of them know, like, I know that I'm really, really emotional. And I know that sometimes I, you know, feel like I overreact, but I don't really understand why, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> talking to our kids about here's what's, here's what's actually happening in your brain, right? There's a reason for this. And, you know, really taking on that role of shepherd, I think, you know, having conversations with our kids where we're not telling them what to do, because if we're telling them what to do, they're not practicing using the logic center in their brain. They're, they're either listening to us or they're not, but they're going to react emotionally. So how do we have conversations with our kids around like, so let's talk this through. If you don't turn in your paper, (laughs) what, what's, what's likely to happen? How can we think about you know, what the consequences of that are. Not in a judgmental way, not in an, I know the right answer and I want you to, you know, guess it or (laughs) give me the right answer. It's like this process where we're literally modeling for them what it looks like to be a critical thinker and to, and to think through those processes. You know, the other thing that's really important for us to do is to acknowledge their really strong emotions. Yeah. This does feel like a big deal. This probably does feel really sad, probably does feel really scary. And then model for them that we can survive those things. You know, it's, yeah, you can have this really big, scary emotion and feel it for a while. And then that feeling is going to start to subside and you're going to be okay. And we're going to figure out what to do from here, right? So to help our kids not be afraid of their big emotions or not feel like they need to hide them because it's perfectly natural, you know, to want to do that. And then also normalizing the idea of mistakes. You're supposed to make mistakes. I've probably made three mistakes before breakfast this morning, right? That's how (laughs) we learn. I mean, it just is. But all too often, I think we expect teenagers to just know, like, you know, they get into high school and we're like, well, you're going to have to figure out time management skills so you can get all your stuff done, right? Well, they're going to make mistakes. And so how do we as parents respond to that? You know, do we respond to it with an, I told you so? Are we sarcastic about it? Are we, do we get angry about it? Do we punish them for making mistakes? Or do we sit down with them and say, man, I wish that didn't happen. All right. What do we need to know? so that this doesn't happen again, or so that next time we can make this a little different and make it a collaborative thing. But, you know, often our kids are afraid to make mistakes and that can really, that becomes an emotional thing for them, right? But if we normalize the fact that I understand that you're going to make mistakes, I totally get that you're, I expect you to make mistakes. And the only bad thing is if we don't figure out how to learn from them. So I love all of your advice. I hope all the parents listening are taking 
notes because it's such wonderful advice. It's so concise and so profound. So just to repeat a few things that you mentioned is we know things about the brain and we can share that information with our kids. We can let them know what's going on with their own developing brains. And you also mentioned how important it is to model what it looks like to be a critical thinker to help them reach the logical conclusions and acknowledge their really strong emotions. This is normal. This is natural. And to normalize the idea of mistakes and almost practice some vulnerability, recognizing we make mistakes and they're going to make mistakes too and we can learn from them. So that's really fantastic. And now that we've talked a bit about the mental side of things, what's happening in the brain, I wouldn't mind shifting to the social side of things. I'm thinking about Piaget's like stages of development and you also mentioned individuation. So on the more like social side, what develops during the teen years? Well, as I said before, human beings are wired to be in community. We are we are supposed to be in relationship with each other. And that really heightens during the adolescent years. One of the most important tasks of an adolescent is identity development. You know, figuring out who am I? What's important to me? What makes me tick? And how do I want to move through the world? And in order to do that, they need peers because up until, you know, the point where they hit middle school, they've mostly gotten that sort of information from their immediate family, maybe from religion or culture, but they haven't really gotten it from their peers. Right. And they haven't had, they've sort of adopted a lot of the things that their parents taught them or that they learned culturally or from religion. And then when they hit the adolescent years, it's really important for them to go out into the world <laughs> and have these relationships where they can try on different things and, they, and they're bouncing ideas off of their peers and their peers are mirroring back to them. Like, that's cool. That's not, you know, and it's not always nice. I mean, Adolescents can be pretty cruel to each other, but it's it's a way for teens to practice being in relationship with people who don't necessarily have to be in relationship with them. Like this person in my homeroom class isn't necessarily going to have unconditional love for me, right? They don't have to love <laughs> me. And if I treat them right. poorly, then they're going to act in this certain way, right? Or if I show up with this kind of attitude, then then these people are going to treat me this way. And that's all really important for us as human beings to, to be able to have those kinds of interactions to figure out, you know, who we are and where our boundaries are. And, and doing that while you're still cocooned in that sort of safe home environment where you do have people that you live with that unconditionally love you is really, really important. I love that. And it is really important to recognize this stage of, as you mentioned, identity development. And one of the ways that manifests is the phase. I think a lot of, you know, teenagers go through, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to enter the, the goth phase or the emo phase or this. Like, they kind of ad- adopt certain roles, right, as they are exploring their identity. And I'm wondering how we as parents best facilitate that, right? Because we kind of recognize, we're like, hmm, this is one of those phases I've heard about. And you know, it's probably not going to last, but they still want certain levels of their identity mirrored, validated back to them. So what's the best way that us as parents can approach 
this stage? I think the best thing that we can do is approach it with acceptance and curiosity. You know, often we either push back on it. Um, I I had a big 80s, big hair band phase, you know, Motley Crue, <laughs> Judas Priest, like Ozzy Osbourne, all of that, went, you know, and my parents were horrified and they really pushed back on it. And I have to say it wouldn't have lasted nearly as long as it did if my parents hadn't been so opposed to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like if my parents had just gone, okay, that's cool. All right. Yep. You do you. I would have probably gotten through it a lot faster. So I think, yeah, accepting, understanding that this is perfectly normal. It's it's really normal for our kids to try on different things. And curiosity, tell me about that. So tell me, you know, what's the best part about this? What is it that you love about this? You know, because again, what we're offering them is an opportunity to use the critical thinking part of their brain to really translate. What is it that I like about moving through the world in this way? Or what is it that I'm passionate about, you know, when it comes to this particular activity? And that's important. Those are really important life skills. I love it. It does really come back to validation, curiosity, acceptance, and just presence, like not pushing back and telling them how silly they are, but welcoming them in. Yeah. And recognizing this is important. This is their job right now. This is what they're supposed to be doing. It's not frivolous. It's not obnoxious. They're not doing it to push our buttons. This is literally what they're supposed to be doing right now. And I think an important part of that identity development is is letting it happen a little bit on their own, right? They're starting to become their own individual. You are also preparing them to be on their own later on in life. And you have an important section in your book that I loved reading on the importance of privacy and you contrast it with secrecy. And I think a lot of parents get these two things confused. So what is the importance of privacy and what's the difference between privacy and secrecy? Hmm. Yeah, so this um, came from Bell Hooks. She wrote this amazing book called All About Love and she talks about this there. And it really struck me as something that's important because I think we do tend to confuse privacy and secrecy. But one of the most important psychological needs of human being is agency, feeling like we have some power to self-determine. And that's what privacy is about, right? I get to define my boundaries. I get to say who I am and what I want or what I need right now. Secrecy is about me having power over you. It's not about me having power over myself. Secrecy is about, I know something you don't know, and it might even be about you, right? Privacy is around having agency and power around myself. And when I have good boundaries, when I have healthy boundaries, when I know what my needs are, and I'm not afraid to express what my needs and my boundaries are, that actually strengthens my relationships with other people. But when I have secrets and I'm holding power over another person, that's that erodes relationship with other people, right? So there's a big distinction there. Privacy is like liberating. Like when I can say, this is this thing that I'm holding on my own. And these are my boundaries around that. I get to relax and play in that space. I'm comfortable. But when I have a secret and I'm trying to hold power over you, that's 
that's stressful, right? I'm, I'm using a lot of energy to kind of maintain that power that I have over you. And so as parents, if we can understand the distinction between those two things, right? Like I used to say to my kids, if you have to hide what it is that you're doing from me, that's secrecy. That's probably not something you you should be doing, right? But if you're just asking for some privacy, because, you know, you don't want me to read your text messages between you and your friends. I don't want you to read my text messages between me and my friends either, right? Like that's privacy. That's not secrecy. That's not you having some power over me. That's you having your own agency and your own self-determination. And what that does is it builds trust and connection. It strengthens our relationships. When I can say, yeah, these things are my private things. And we're not going to have a conversation about that. And, and if I'm super clear about that, right, then that actually strengthens our relationship. So, and we end up not feeling threatened by each other. We might still be interested. I might be like, oh, I wish you would talk to me about that. Cause that's kind of, I'd love to have more information about that. Right. But it doesn't erode our connection because it's not that you have power over me. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, in my head, I, I keep going back to love because I do think that Accepting somebody for who they are, allowing somebody to be who they are, welcoming somebody into this world to be the person that they are meant to be is an important part of love. And it reminds me of a blessing along the lines of may you be who you are and may you be blessed in all that you are. And really just welcoming in this this wonderful human being that is turning into an adult right in front of us. And... I want to just offer you just a really open-ended question in terms of how can we be the most loving parent possible? I think it's really important for us to take a step back and be willing to see our kids as whole, distinct human beings with needs and desires that are just as important as our needs and desires. And that sounds really basic, (laughs) but as a parent, it, it's so easy to conflate your needs and desires with your kids, right? And to have this sense of like, my child belongs to me or their behavior reflects on me as a human being. But when we can step back and see them as distinct, whole, entire human beings who think maybe in different ways than we do, who have slightly different passions than we do, but whose needs and desires are no less important than ours are, then I think we can start to have that feeling of just this deep love and respect and awe, you know, thinking about all of the things that our kids are dealing with, things that that we certainly didn't have to deal with, right? I didn't have to deal with all of the social media when I was growing up. I I got to play sports seasonally. I didn't have to specialize in a sport by the time I was 10 or 11 years old. I, you know, there, I didn't come out of college with six figure student loans. I'm, you know, like the world is a completely different place now and what kids are navigating now. I I certainly didn't go to high school during a pandemic, you know? So if we can step back and, and not see them in relationship to us, like this isn't my kid, but this is this like amazing whole distinct human being that's then we can start to see the magic in that. And then I think it's easier to just have that pure love for our kids. I love that sentiment. 
And I think it perfectly leads into my last and final question that I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I think I wish everyone knew how amazingly transformative it is, how it's scary, but but if we can let ourselves really just exist in that place of love and come from a place of love, that it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. You know, it changes all of our interactions with people that we know and don't know. It changes the choices we make. It changes the way that we see the world and the way that we move through the world. And so if we can find ways to really come from that place or rest in that place, it's just incredibly transformative, not just for us, but for all of the people around us as well. Absolutely. Coming from a place of love changes everything. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (sighs) Thank you so much, Carrie O'Driscoll, for coming on to the show. Your new book is Happy Healthy Teens, Why Focusing on Relationship Works. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Um, I have a website called The Self Project. It's theselfproject.com. And um, I'm always updating. I you know, answer questions and do parent coaching and run parent support groups for parents of teens. You can find out about all of those things from the website. And then I also am on Facebook and Instagram as well. So... Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you are taking notes for so many of the valuable lessons that Carrie shared with us today. I can only list just a few of them, such as don't make parenting decisions out of fear, offer loving presence to your teenager, be aware of your own current emotional state, and set aside judgment and lead with curiosity. Numerous changes happen in a developing teen's brain. And it's important to share that information that the emotional processing center is highly activated. So it's important to model what it means to be a critical thinker, to acknowledge the really strong emotions, and also to normalize the idea of making mistakes. And don't forget to have a deep, love and respect and awe for this distinct and incredible human being that is becoming and coming from a place of love changes everything. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Carrie. Thank you. It was great talking to you today, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.